I am uh, from Michigan, the city of Flint, in fact, but uh, don't be afraid of me, okay? I'm a nice guy. My wife and I, when we vacationed down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, some days ago, or some, some years ago, in fact, we were there, and people would kind of exchange in the elevator. Have you ever been to these places where you crowd in, you crowd out, so you start carrying on in some little conversation? And people say, where are you from? And I'd say, well, Michigan. they say, where from? And I'd say, Flint. And all of a sudden, they'd take like two giant steps backwards, like, man, he might be dangerous. But uh, like you said, Pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life, and so he's transformed everything. Today, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7, and we're going to look at somebody's life that I think is very important, from whom we can learn a great deal of things. Uh, have you ever learned or studied the man by the name of Gideon in your life? You ever done that? Yeah, just kind of give me a shake in the head? Yes, okay. Well, good. Well, today we're going to look at him again, and I'm hoping that I can help you identify with him because I do on so many levels. And let me kind of, kind of encase it in this way. Uh, do you find in your life from time to time that there are moments where possibly you doubt that following the Lord is really worth it all? And, and you can say that to yourself. You don't have to answer to your neighbor or to me, but you know what I'm saying. It's the thing of, wow, this is really tough. You know, all my other friends are doing this. My family thinks it's weird that I'm at church on Sunday morning. I talk about praying for them in the midst of their trouble, and all they want to do is talk about their trouble. So this is kind of weird. So there might be times in your life where you've doubted whether or not it's really worth pressing on to do all that you can for the Lord and be in his kingdom. There's also the possibility that some of you are here today where... Fear has kept you from moving forward in your faith experience. And I hope you understand what I'm saying. The other day I had a conversation with a friend, and, and I was asking him. He's been a follower of Christ for maybe 35 years. He's in his retirement years now. And I said to him, I said, what are you going to do in the near future that really opens up this opportunity of freedom in your life? Your house is paid off. You have no car payments. All these kind of possibilities. And he said, well, I'm just going to enjoy my retirement. What fear keeps you from moving into a new faith experience from God, with God? I mean, just what keeps you from doing that? And then some of us here in this room today, we might even feel this way, and that is that we're holding on to something, some kind of trouble, some kind of trial, some kind of misery. And this is the weird thing. We'd rather hang on to the misery that we know than to let go and grab hold of the solution that God offers to the future. And honestly, I see that so many times throughout my ministry as a pastor. And so today we're going to learn from Gideon, who I think can help us learn what it's like to, to, to stop being reluctant and instead follow the Lord. I would probably be able to give you a take-home. Let me give you this take-home statement, and you can kind of jot it down or think about it in your mind while we're looking at the Scripture in just a moment. And here's my take-home for you and just a summary statement of this message. A greater obedience to God results in a greater confidence in God. Okay? A greater obedience to God results in a greater obedience or a greater confidence in God. There are so many of us throughout the years, ever since 77, when I decided to follow the Lord in ministry, that at times we say, you know, if only God would show himself, then I would do A, B, C. And the Lord says in turn to us, if you'll do A, then I will show you the next step. And so this idea that we have to grow our obedience and then follow it with this confidence that grows in the Lord is what we're going to see today in the life of Gideon. Have you got your Bibles open to, uh, to uh, Judges chapter 7 with me? If you would, I'd love it if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read this together. And I promise that I won't be long, but I want to just take and read this in a sacred moment because uh, these words are so alive and so fresh that this morning, if you'll think of the questions that I posed to you, 
Is there something you're afraid of that keeps you from pressing forward in a faith experience with God? Is there a trouble or a crisis in your life that you're clinging to because you know that better than the mystery of what God wants to lead you to? If you'll listen to the story of Gideon, maybe you'll find that you'll relate to him because he had that same condition in his life. He was reluctant to press on to the future that God had in front of him. And it seemed like every kind of turn, God had to show him more for him to press on. I'm going to only make a couple, minutes, a couple comments here at the beginning. And then after we read, we're going to pray together. But I just want to just uh, let you know, I love to just make a couple of comments. Chapter, one says, chapter 7 says, Then Jeroboam. Can I stop for a moment already and just tell you about Jeroboam? Jeroboam is interesting because it's the nickname that his father gave him. Gideon's life is like described in three chapters, just right here in the scripture where you're at. And in the preceding chapter, he went out and he destroyed the false idol altars for the false gods. He destroyed them. And the city people, the townspeople, were so upset with him that they wanted to kill him and destroy him. And his father said, you know what? Don't kill my son. Instead, if that God is really truly God, then let that God destroy him. And that's where you got the name Jeroboam. And then it goes on, his original name, that is Gideon. Can I stop there for a moment and tell you, and I promise I won't do this every three words, I promise, okay? But I just love to, to help you identify with these discoveries. Gideon, the word really means to be one that cuts down things, okay? One that trims things, prunes things, and it can be interpreted to mean a warrior. Years ago when I was preparing a message on the life of Gideon, I discovered that there was this ancient Jewish theologian who said that the word Gideon actually means one who has a cut-off or stumped arm. Now, yeah, that's what I thought of too when I read it. I was like, you know, it's like, really? Now, the reason I bring that up is because if he had a gimp arm, that really adds a whole lot to the three chapters that you study with the life of Gideon. If not only was he saying to the people, I'm the least of the clan, and I'm the least of the clan inside the country of people that I call Israelites, that I'm the least of the least of the least. And if he's really saying, in fact, I've got a gimp arm. If he's really saying that, then you can start to relate to him because I think every one of us in this room this morning have what we would call a gimp arm. Would you agree with me? You know what I'm talking about. It's that one weakness that maybe you hide from everybody else in their life, but you know, and God knows what it is. You and he know about it all the time, every day. So as you read now with this, and I promise you I'll go on now. Okay, I promise you. Because you're going to go, man, he won't get done with reading this, I'm telling you. Just listen to this, because as the Lord works in Gideon's life, he wants to work in your life. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their, land, into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Thou now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone who, of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And of anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. 
And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go against the camp, for I have given it to your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, There is no other than the sword of, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God had given his, into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands and all of, hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise when I come to the outskirts of the camp. Do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me Then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled, and when they blew the 300 trumpets. The Lord said, Every man's against, sword against his comrade and against all the army, and all the army fled. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you today for the power of your word, and I pray that even this morning as we pause just to thank you for your holy word, that today we will realize that this word can apply to our life immediately. That, Lord, for every one of us, there is some army that we need to push out of our lives. And, Father, we need to depend upon you to teach us how. So today, Lord, bless us. Help each one of us to understand that this has an application to each of our lives. And, Father, glorify yourself by helping us to stand up as we leave in just a few moments to be different people than when we came in. Warriors for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today I want to talk to you about three lessons that I think we can gain from this passage as we go through it. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for letting me be here so that we can have this time together. Number one, God does mighty things with people who are initially disobedient, fearful, and reluctant. God does mighty things with people who are initially disobedient, fearful, and reluctant. When you look at this passage and you look at the fact that in this Bible, three chapters are dedicated to the life of Gideon. And you find out immediately that he's a hesitant man. That whenever God calls him to do something, he just doesn't snap to action. He always seems to hesitate. In fact, in just a few verses prior to this chapter, there was that moment when God had already had a conversation with with him through a messenger. And uh, Gideon said, well, Lord, 
I've got this idea just to make sure that this is what you want done. I want to make sure I, I know that this is what you want me to do. I'm going to put this fleece, this, this lamb's wool, out there on this ground. And in the morning when I rise up, if it's wet and the ground around it is dry, then I'll do what you want. He got up the next morning, and as you would expect, everything was just as he had planned. God gave a sign. Do you know what happened immediately? Did he immediately follow? No. He was reluctant to follow. So now he says, Lord, guess what? Now I just want to take it, and let's do the opposite. I've already wringed out the water, a bowlful, Lord. And if you would, I would like to ask you now to do just the opposite. If you would, make sure that the fleece is dry and the ground around it is wet. Have you ever found yourself where you're reluctant and disobedient? and fearful to do what God calls you to do within your life. Here's the good news. God will use you, make use of you anyways in his kingdom's work. That's the beauty of this entire account of Gideon's life. So the lesson number one for us to learn today is that God does mighty things with people who are initially disobedient, fearful, and reluctant. But the converse of that is true too. If we're not going to ever follow him and be obedient, and to be bold, and to be confident in the Lord, he won't be able to make use of us. That's the sad thing. So initially is a key word in that. Lesson number two we gain from looking at Gideon's life. God will calm our fears. God will calm our fears as we face his call. God will calm our fears as we face his call. Gideon was so hesitant, he did the whole game with the fleece. If it's wet, one day and dry the next, then I will do what you've asked me to do. Then he goes on, the Lord says, I want to take that army that you've got, 32,000 strong, and I want you to first of all stand in front of everybody and say to them, if you're trembling with fear, you can go ahead and walk away. How many left? You remember? 22,000, right? Okay, they were shaking and quaking in their sandals. They were so nervous they couldn't hold any weaponry that they were thinking about in their mind. And so 22,000 disappeared. Two-thirds of an army disappeared. You know what God was doing at that point? He was, re- he was taking away any sense of security that Gideon might have really been clinging to. Okay, Lord, I'll do this as long as you give me, you know, 22,000 plus 10,000, you know, this over 30,000 men. I'll be glad to follow you. Lord says, well, guess what? We're going to take care of that. We're going to remove that. But really what I'm doing is I'm calming your fear because you're placing your confidence in all these warriors rather than me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove that from you so there won't be a temptation in your life. Guess what? Have you ever had that done in your life with the Lord? You're, you're going to that same person for counsel in your life, for advice. And, you know, you're going, well, I'm going to go talk to Henry, or I'm going to talk to Sam, or I'm going to talk to Betty, or I'm going to talk to Lisa, and we're going to have this conversation because they've always been my good advisor. How has that worked for you through your life? Instead, the Lord says, Gideon, I'm going to remove these people, and you have to look to me. So he does it. He takes away that power, military power, and says you've got to rely upon divine power. Within the account, too, I love it after he whittles the things down from 32,000 men down to 300. Here's how frequently the Lord addresses fear and reluctance in Gideon's life. The, the word in Hebrew for the word fear is Yay re okay, yay re We would spell it like Y-A-R-E. And so I want you to think about this today. We don't want to be clothed in yay re We don't want to be clothed in fear. We want to be clothed in the confidence of God, right? That's what we want to do. And so what was happening with him was he was being told, you've got to get rid of this fear. You've got to be removing this in your life. But when you look in the scripture, if you would, looking at your scripture, do you look at verse 10? Do you discover that the Lord still has discovered that Gideon has a moment of fear? 
Okay? He's whittled down all the confidence of the army that might be there. And he says in verse 10, he says, Your friend, Pura, if you're still not certain, why don't you take him and walk into the outpost of the camp of the Midianites? And what does Gideon do? He goes, absolutely, let's go. So he takes Pura, he goes into the camp of the Midianites, and he goes down there to look. Here's what the Lord does. He uses the dream and the interpretation of his enemy to give Gideon confidence. That's what he does. He lets him understand that there is still freedom, there is still ability to be delivered by the Lord. In verse 13, the two men are talking. One says, man, I had this dream. There was this big barley loaf that just came rolling down the hill and crushed this tent, turned it upside down. And he's told by his friend, well, man, that is surely the sign of Gideon and the Israelites are going to come to destroy our village. And it says immediately that he worships and he praises God. In my own life, I've had a couple of experiences where things like that happen. Pastor was telling you about the fact that my wife and I were missionaries or lived overseas in, in various countries. We lived in Africa, and our first church building, it was a published article with a missions magazine out of Chicago, our first church building that we had was built by Muslims. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. It was entirely built by Muslims because they said there's no way that an American would know how to build the structure that they needed to be put up. What had happened was we had gone into this country where we were the first Southern Baptist missionary to be the preacher in this mission team. And as I was getting ready to preach and share the gospel, we decided we're going to be like everybody else. As the call to prayers came five times a day, we're going to go out into the streets and we're going to start preaching the gospel. So I'd stand up in my traditional garments like the uh, African men would wear, and I would break open the Bible that was written in the Zarman language, and I'd start reading stories about the accounts of Jesus Christ on the street corners. And within just a matter of weeks, we went from 12 to 80 to 300 people meeting with us on the street corners, listening to us preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you, though, there's always a resistance. Give God the credit for that. I agree. You know, it's good. But I'll tell you what, there's always a resistance when you see things like that happen. One of the local Muslim priests there in that community had men that came from his uh, place where he was at, and they threatened the one Christian man in the entire city that we knew. They threatened him and said, you stop bringing that white man into our village preaching, or to our section of town, preaching about this Jesus Christ. And so then then that didn't work. Then they brought some other men into the area where we were preaching and teaching. They started stoning us with rocks and throwing their flip-flops at us and calling us dirty names. Fortunately, what had happened was I had went to see a man who was the chief over the territory there, and I remember weeks before having this conversation with him, his name was Chief uh, Chameleon because he had three wives, all different distinct colors of black in their life. And I'm just being respectful of the way they described it there. He had a person from the northern territory of the Niger Republic, from the middle territory, and from the you know, bottom territory. So he had about 20-some children by three different women. And so his name was Chief Chameleon because his kids were all different shades of brown and black. And that's why he nicknamed himself that name. Well, after I went to see him, I said, you know, weeks ago I came and asked your permission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area. And I want you to know that some people started causing trouble. And I apologize that all this trouble got kicked up. He said, don't you worry about it. He says, I'll tell you what, put me in your Toyota Cruiser over here. And he said, let's just go driving around the community. And so we went driving around the community. And over about 20 or 30 minutes, he just kept having me make circles around this little town and through this area of the city. And we were like in the shadows of this big mosque that had been built by the country of Libya. And he said, just keep doing a tour. And then before you knew it, he said, okay, go ahead and stop. As we got out, he put his hand out. Everybody, he was greeting. He was going, salam malikum, malikum salam. You know, and they're touching their heads and their hearts. Nothing's bad in my head against you. Nothing's heart in my heart's against you. And they're doing all this greeting, greeting this big, mighty, powerful chief in this territory. 
And he's having me stay real close to him. Now, in this country, it was customary that when you had a special relationship with somebody, you took him by the hand, and so he would take me by the hand and just have me follow him in, his, my sh- in, my sh- in his shadow along with my wife. And he kept doing this over and over again. And so he's greeting people, introducing my wife and me, Jamie, as her name in Arabic is Jamila, which means pretty thing, okay, Jamila. And so he, and Tony was not so attractive. The word Tony was translated Tony in the country we were at, which, which meant big, heavy stone. Okay, bad news for me. Good news for my wife, bad news for me, all right? Big, heavy stone, pretty, and she is pretty. But anyway, so he's doing all this for us, and he's introducing us, you know, and he's just, and he's taking us, right. and you might be asking, were we afraid? Oh, yeah. We had just been stoned. We'd just been cursed at. We had women who were being drugged by their hair and by their clothing to get away from listening to us preach. We already had a crude audience of 300 people. We were a little bit frightened. Here's what he said in the Zarma language. In the Zarma language, he said after he greeted everybody, Tony and Jamie are my friends. And he said, you may know me. He said, I worked on the last president's cabinet. He said, I am a colonel in the military. He said, I've traveled to Italy, France, and the United States. And everywhere I went, he said, I saw that the great countries allowed their synagogues and their mosques and their churches all to stand side by side, and everybody lived in peace. He said, now me, I'm a Muslim, I will die a Muslim. But he said, my 20-some children do not go to the mosque to pray. And so he said, if they can become good Christians, I'd rather they be good Christians than poor Muslims. And so he said, Tony, my friend, is going to build a church right here at this spot. That was brand new news to me, okay? I mean, it was like, what? You know, how much money is this going to cost us, you know? Good news is that it was just the things where you put the stick in the desert sands of the Niger, you know, Republic. It was like on the edge of the Sahara Desert. You take a big machete, you drill a hole, you put the standing sticks, you put the sticks across, you strap them with reeds, and then you put these big mats from all kinds of river grass above you. And basically, that is your church building project. Total cost? Two hundred and forty dollars. All right, immediately a place to worship. Okay, Muslims built our place to worship, but you know what we really received? A license to be there every single day of the week. And people tell me we've since left there and turned it over to somebody else that there's now a Christian school right at that site where children are taught day after day after day about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we look at Gideon, you know, I, I agree. Let's praise the Lord for that. You know. As we look at Gideon and we look at the situation where we say, God, you know, am I initially reluctant? Am I fearful? Guess what? There's still hope for you. There's still hope for you. And I want you to know that God will calm your fear because he will calm you down even when you're fearful. He says, listen, Gideon, he said, I'm going to take care of this. You know, all right, we'll do the fleece thing because I've already told you what I want you to do. You're just being hesitant. And he said, I'm going to cut your number of troops down because you need to rely upon me. And he says, and this friend Pura, go down there and listen to him. And I'll even let your enemies dream about you and then tell you what the dream means. And you can come back and get everybody ready for war. And he did exactly that. So here's the third lesson we need to understand. God calls us to win with unconventional weapons. God calls us to win with unconventional weapons. Man, when he called them to fight their battle, he didn't say, take all your armament, do all these violent things. He said, he said, you saw it, right? He says, if you would, take a trumpet, all right? Take a trumpet. If you ever listen to the band Chicago, one of the greatest band brass groups in the entire world, okay? If you ever grew up with them, I did. Okay, so take your trumpet, take a torch, and put it under this clay object, you know, this clay kind of vessel to protect the lighting of the torch so that you can go in darkness. But at one moment, when I shout for the Lord and for Gideon, you bust the jar, blow the trumpets, and everybody will think that they are attacked, being attacked immediately, and they will destroy themselves, and they will run. God will do that for your life, too. 
Be careful that when God calls you into a victorious experience that he doesn't allow you, that he does not allow you to take on the flesh weapons that we so often use within our lives. But use spiritual weapons. Clothing, if, closing, if you would, go to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7. I want to show you how there's an attachment because there's this connection that I love where Christ can be seen in the Old Testament and Christ can be seen in the New Testament. Christ is the light of the world, right? Isn't he the light? He refers to himself as the light. Well, in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7, the Bible says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What I love about connecting this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is, number one, Paul's writing to a church that had a lot of problems. You, you know the church at Corinth, right? They had a lot of flesh problems, man. They really did. You know, it was a great church. It was growing. But, boy, they had to always address their challenges. And so they had this. And the clay can represent the flesh in our lives. But here's this light inside of us when we follow Jesus Christ. You know, if I still remained without Christ, I'd still just be nothing more than just that earthen vessel without light, but only darkness inside me. But because I came to know Jesus Christ back in 1974 on the heels of the Jesus movement of the United States of North America, came to know Jesus Christ because somebody witnessed to me, and then I would witness to others in the streets and in the neighborhoods of Flint, Michigan, then the Lord came into my life, and there's this light that I want everybody to know who he is. So what we need to do, number one, and this one is learn this lesson. Realize that the light that shines within us, according to verse six, in, verse 6 in this chapter, is the light of Jesus Christ. It's not a light that you have. It's not a light that I have. You don't have to have a light that looks like Pastor Garth, or you don't have to have the talent of another person in this church or be able to sing like Miss Patty. All you've got to do is let the light that Christ has in your earthen vessel, in your clay vessel, be the light that needs to shine for Jesus Christ. And God will use it in mighty ways. He will use it in mighty ways. Just like he did it to liberate the people of Israel from their enemies, he'll do the same thing with you and the lives of other people. Second lesson we need to learn is that we must shatter, shatter our clay jars to reveal the life-giving, glaring light of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 and 7, there's something unique about this light here. It talks about being blinded, about being blinded. Another occasion back in our original days when we were in Africa, we were out on a big prayer retreat in the month of August in the Niger Republic. It was sweltering. It was so sweltering. And there was this man walking down the street one day, and his name was Yaye. And Yaye said, what are you, a bunch of white people, doing in Africa near this place during the hottest time of the year? And we said, we're on a prayer retreat, and we're asking God to help us to be able to help your people and you. And so he sat down with us, and in a matter of minutes, because he was ready to see the light of Jesus Christ, this former Muslim man, in a matter of seconds, gave his life to Jesus Christ. Here's what he said to me. 
He said, there's been somebody that's been walking to our village across the river from the south. Oftentimes, it seemed like every month or every week. And he'd bring this holy book with him. And he'd read the scriptures about Isa. That's the word for Jesus in Arabic. He says, this Isa. And he says, we would listen to him and we'd ask him to stay. But he'd always walk away from the village going further south. And he said, we know who you talk about. He said, my heart's burning within me. And he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. That was about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning in part of south and southern part of the Niger Republic. As we did that, we were wrapping things up. He says, please come to my village and explain to my friends how they can become Christians. We got into the, again, the Toyota Land Cruiser, drove to his village. Back there, we saw baboons, lions, the whole, you know, African scene. Got in there. The men were coming in from about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They had machetes laying across their lap because they were farmers. They were working with a crop called millet, which is bird seed, which they ate night and day in their own lives. And uh, they're sitting there. The women are breastfeeding their babies over to our right, and all the children are sitting to our left, and they're listening to this. When we shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, 17 male leaders of this small village accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pulled a Billy Graham on them. I didn't know how else to do it. I just said, you know, after I got in preaching, there were like some of them who said, we've heard all our lives that there's two ways to Jesus. They drew two sands parallel in the sand. They said, one by the way of Muhammad, the other by the way of Jesus. And I said, I can only tell you what their scripture says. Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the man rubbed that out, and he said, we knew that would be the truth. And he says, we accept Jesus Christ. And the Billy Graham moment I said was, would you please raise your hand if you're ready to accept Jesus? I mean, I had no other way to do it, you know. Now, there were some men who got up, stood at their feet, and were spitting on the ground, which was the African sign for saying, I don't want to accept what you're telling us. But 17 men gave their lives to Jesus Christ that day. So here's what I want to close with right now at this moment. Here's what I want to ask you. Your church, where is God calling you to go in the future? What is God calling you to do in the near future, the intermediate future, the far future within the life of the gathering? You know, we can get very comfortable where we're at. You know, we, our church right now in Michigan is running about 300 on either side of 300 on a typical Sunday. And right now it's getting pretty comfortable. And a lot of times I hear us say things like, well, what do we need? What does the world need? What do the lost need? How can we reach more people for Jesus Christ? And it might be on our campus or it might be off of our campus. How about this? Let me ask you this question. How about in your family life? You might be thinking that, you know, you just can't wait for somebody else to make your family life better. You think it's your wife's responsibility. She thinks it's your responsibility. You think it's something that God's got to do. Listen, Gideon might have been a man with a gimp arm. He might have really been a man with maybe, a, a, you know, an underdeveloped arm in his life. Maybe that was the origin of his name. But here's the thing. Still, when God called him to do great and mighty things, he accepted the call finally, even though he was reluctant at first. And then finally, here's this. What about your personal life? Is there, a, is there a battle where the Midianites have encamped themselves in something within your life that you're being robbed of a blessing? You're being robbed of a place of growth. You're being robbed of something that you could do that you know God wants you to flush out the enemy. But the only way you're going to do it is with a faith experience. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's something that you're allowing into your life that's corrupting your faith in the Lord, that's stealing the blessing of intimacy with him, turn to Christ today. And let him work in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for how wonderful and mighty and how beautiful you are. Lord, I thank you for this ability and for this freedom to talk about Gideon today. I thank you for the wonderful people at the gathering and how gracious they've been and for their kindness. And I pray, Holy Father, that today, whatever it is that's working in their life, whatever it is that you'd like to do in their lives, Lord, each individual, that, Father, even as we read the life of Gideon, that you'll find a way to crush and to shatter the flesh 
the flesh in, that's represented by that clay jar. And Lord, instead, expose the light that's within us. And Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, may they speak to Pastor Garth or with someone in this congregation today before they leave and say to them, I don't know about the light that Tony talked about. I want that light within my life because I want to be the light to my friends, my family, and to my community. Would you do that today? In Jesus' name, amen.